Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If you will, open up your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. We have a couple of more weeks left, actually this week and next week, and then we will have a summer series that Peyton and I are really excited about. I'll announce it next week. But until then, we've got a couple of more minor prophets we want to we want to deal in, and Zephaniah is the one for today. Zephaniah is interesting. He is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings of Judah. But Zephaniah is not a king. He's a prophet. And he prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom, if you know about that split and divide years before, then you also may already understand that the southern kingdom has already been taken into captivity by the, by the Assyrians. But he's here to try to help the southern kingdom. He prophesied during the time of King Josiah. You may remember him as the eight-year-old king who came in, into play, and he was one of the good guys. He tried to bring reform to Israel. He tried to change it. He, he destroyed all the idols throughout the land and even in the temple. But unfortunately, that reform was short-lived. Zephaniah uses the phrase, the day of the Lord, more than any of the other prophets. It speaks of a time when God will intervene into human history and he will bring forth his justice, his judgment. The first section begins with this, this poetic description of a reverse of creation. In fact, if you have your Bible, Zephaniah chapter 1, 2, and 3 says, I will utter, utterly sweep away everything. From the face of the earth declares the Lord, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And he even goes on in verse 15, and he says, it's a day of wrath a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And he's, what he's describing here is, is the earth is going to go back to this time of chaos, disorder, and darkness. And he's talking about Jerusalem. And what he's saying is that they will be like the earth was before God brought forth the order from the first day, which is it's a time when the earth was uninhabitable. And he's saying Jerusalem's going to be uninhabitable by the time the, the mighty Babylonians rise up and, and they take them over. So then he, in the second section, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 4, Zephaniah includes the nations that are surrounding Jerusalem. People like the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites and even the mighty Assyrian empire. And he says, they will go down just as Nahum had predicted their great capital would go down the week before. These nations are arrogant, corrupt, and violent. You shouldn't feel sorry for these folks. These are awful, wicked people, and they did awful, wicked things to humanity. Surely there's, surely we're nothing like these people though, right? I mean. We don't have idols in our auditorium. We, we don't sacrifice our children to Molech. 
But idol worship was just a, a sign of a much deeper problem with the people. They were no longer seeking the Lord, nor did they really even care what God had to say. In fact, in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, he says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to search Jerusalem with light, and therefore no one will be able to hide in the darkness when this day comes. And he says, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, or nor will he do ill. Those who are complacent, literally in the Hebrew, it means who are thickening of the dregs of their wine. And it's speaking about wine that's been sitting a while and it, it, it hardens at the bottom. It kind of crusts, crusts as well. It's, he's talking about in their time of ease and prosperity, they have become hard hearted. And, and they either believe that God will not do or that he is powerless to do what he says that he will do to them. But even though we as humanity, we can be indifferent towards the Almighty God, he is not indifferent towards us. And he even sends the word in Zechariah 1 and verse 18, he says, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to save them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. People in Zephaniah's day, just like our own day, they attributed their own wealth and prosperity to themselves. They did not see God as being the one who gives us these good provisions. They, they um, trust in their own power to get out of situations and dealing with people. And we really see this with the wealthy of the world. We always have seen this. They're able to get out of situations that poor people cannot. But what Zephaniah says that while you've been able to do those things in other places, he says, there's this judgment that's coming. He says, you're not getting out of it. I don't care how much gold or silver you may have. And this kind of plays into the things of the prophets. When King Asa was threatened by King Israel, by the king of Israel, he sent silver and gold to the Syrians to purchase deliverance in the book of 2 Chronicles 16, 1-3. When King Ahaz was threatened, he sent silver and gold to the Assyrians for deliverance in the book of 2 Kings 16, 7 and 9. When King Ahaz, or Jehoiakim rather, gave silver and gold to Pharaoh, so that they could be delivered. Also in 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 35, but all the silver and gold in the world was not going to save the people of Zephaniah's time and their descendants from what is coming. Judgment's coming. Ezekiel 7 verse 19, he prophesies about the coming of Babylon upon Judah. And in there he says, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. And ironically, it's the wealthy who were carted off to captivity first. The poor people were left to the land to be able to work it. One of the interesting stories that came out during the gold rush in the Klondike Mountains is some prospectors came upon this old prospecting um, miner, old miner's hut. 
and they walk in and they find two skeletons of men and gold, just an abundance of gold. There was also this rough tablet that talked about their successes and what happened. They had, in all of their successes they were having at the time, they had forgotten about winter coming early up in those northern mountains. So every day they were going out and they were finding this abundance of gold until one morning they woke up and there was a snowstorm. And, and it lasted for days and they had no hope of escape. And what little bit of food they had, it ran out until finally they laid down in the midst of all their gold and they died. All the gold couldn't save them. Money and possessions make us feel powerful, but it cannot save you for the coming day of the Lord. And it's coming. On that day, it will be revealed what it is that you trusted the most. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 and 10, it was the Apostle Paul who says, but those who desire, now notice this wording, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many pains. Now, this is not a judgment on all who are rich. It's the pursuit of it. In fact, someone may not even be rich and they're pursuing it. And he says that it's this pursuit that is spiritually hazardous to us. Now, he does have something, a warning to the rich as he goes on in verse 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Now, keep that in the back of your mind haughtiness and prosperity, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share the storing up treasures for themselves as good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And the point that Paul is making is, is trust God not in your wealth, not in your power or your position. Because on the day of judgment, there's only one who can save us, and that's Jesus. Now, so far, this all seems like a lot of gloom and doom, doesn't it? In fact, a lot of people, when they think about the prophets, that's exactly what they think. This is all just negative stuff. But as we've seen every week, within these prophecies is a mixture of hope with judgment. Two things that, that I want to point out. One is where he tells the people to gather together in chapter two, verses one through three, and he says to seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. He calls on them, seek the Lord. That is to set your mind and your heart on the things of God and not on these earthly things. Isn't this what we continue to be told as followers of Jesus? In Colossians chapter three, one and two, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, 
seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on the things of the earth. And yet we can be guilty of reading our bank accounts more than we do God's holy word. We can, we can focus in on all the things that are going on in our world and worry about our money and we worry about a recession and worry about these things and we never really focus on the great abundance of grace that God has given to his people. Of course, there's obstacles to seeking the Lord. And the primary thing is pride. That, this was the problem of the people. This is why he says there in chapter 2, verse 3, not only to seek the Lord, but seek humility. Because the problem is the prideful, they see what they have done and they become apathetic to God. We boast of our possessions. We boast of our, our position. But to truly seek righteousness in what he says. It means to seek after the standard that God has laid out before us, which is why we seek God. But it must be done in humility, according to Psalm chapter 25 and verse 9. You know, God never leaves us hopeless. He provides a way back. And as he's leading into, into chapter 2, the very first thing he says is to gather together. You need each other, the remnant of God, those who want to be faithful. Two are better than one is what Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 9 and 10 tells us. We need each other. This is why Jesus put us into communities. He never intended for us to be online <laughs> and for long periods of time. He intends for us to be together because I'm here to tell you. Our world is, is not getting any better right now. But we have hope, and we have hope as we come together and as we seek the Lord together in His righteousness, as we find that encouragement that we need. Because I'll be honest, sometimes I want to give up, and I don't think I'm the only one this morning who feels that way. We need each other. We need each other. The other thing I want to talk about is this purifying fire. Zephaniah ends this second section of his book this way. In Zephaniah 3.8, he says, For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth will be consumed. Whew. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Which is why the final part of this book is so shocking, because what we learn is that this fire that the Lord is going to pour out in His judgment, His justice, was not meant to destroy humanity, but rather to purify them to cut out that which is, is evil in our lives that are truly destroying us and that is a, as an offense to God. The very next verse in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, For at that time, okay, at the time of this purification, this is what he says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him 
with one accord. The nation's speech was impure. They called on idols. They dishonored God. Hosea 2 verse 7 talks about this. But God is going to transform them into this unified family. Folks, this is, this is the promise that was first given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3, that this people will rise up and they will bring a blessing to all the families of the earth. And right before it, in chapter 11 of Genesis, God had confused the languages. He had sent the nations out because they had, would not do the will of God. But now Zephaniah is, is he's, what he's announcing is a reversal of Babel. When humanity, the nations, and God's people, they come rise up together with one voice and they worship God. They call upon him according to Romans 15 and verse 6. And once again, the people of the earth will call upon the name of the Lord as it had first been done in Genesis chapter 4 and in verse 26 before it just went off the rails. In the New Testament, calling on the name of the Lord Jesus saves us from judgment. It's a prayer of deliverance. It's a prayer of repentance. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 they have given up their pride is what Zephaniah 3 and verse 12 says. This is what the purification does. They'll no longer be in shame. They, they, they now have humbled, humbled themselves in our pride. God will humble us. If you are his child, he will humble you. If you allow material possessions to make you feel superior, he may take those things away from you. If, if our position becomes a source of pride, he may bring us to shame. Even if we believe, begin to think that we are somehow spiritually superior to everyone else, he may expose our own sinfulness. And it sounds vindictive and harsh but the purpose is to humble us, to purge us of evil that will truly destroy us. The book of Zephaniah contains this wonderful imagery that goes back and forth. There's, there's judgment and there's his love. It's in his passion that we see his, his judgment, his justice to rescue the world from human evil and violence. God is not going to tolerate the things that humans do to each other and to his good world. But he also brings justice out of love to restore and to create a world where people can live in safety and peace. In Zephaniah 3.17, listen to this. He says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you 
with loud singing. Read a story about a child who was laying in bed late at night and a man enters her room. She begins to scream. Her mother rushes in and comes to her side and the little girl grabs her mother. The man gets on the phone and he's making arrangements with someone on the other end. He then pulls the little girl away from the mother and, and rushes downstairs to an awaiting car. He drives, he drives frantically down the streets till he gets to this big building. There he, he gives the girl to this other man who takes her into this inner room and he takes out a knife and he cuts her. She lay there as if she were dead. I don't know what you're thinking so far from the story. Maybe you're thinking an abduction. Maybe you're thinking that this is some kind of, of killer. But actually what I've described to you is a story of love. Let me give you the details. The little girl had been suffering with these attacks of these abdominal pains. The family doctor had told them, listen, we want you to watch her very, very carefully. That particular night, she was having a bad, terrible episode and the father rushes in. And seeing his little girl who is suffering, he takes her and he drives her frantically to the hospital where he hands her off to the doctor that he had spoken with on the phone to meet him there. He then takes her into this inner room where he performs surgery that saves the little girl's life. Through it all, every act of the father was an act of love. The father loved this child just as much on this, in this dark night as he did when he showed up a few days later with flowers and candy. Love places the permanent welfare of the object of their love above any temporary comfort. And that, folks, is the book of Zephaniah. Yet the world describes our Father in the first realm. It doesn't give the description of His mercy and His hope and His love. In our nation, we have come to a time when love has been exaggerated. It has been presented as something that God will always give us those things that are pleasant and enjoyable. Otherwise, then, then God is evil or it can't be from God at all. And we do believe that God blesses his people. But the Bible does not present the almighty God as a doting grandparent, but as a father who, who is looking out for the best interest of his child. God deals with us according to our needs. The great physician will put his child on the operating table and he will use the surgeon's knife when he sees that there's a deadly tumor that is sapping our, our spiritual lives. He does not hesitate to deal with us severely at times, but he loves us just as much in surgery as he does when he gives us flowers and candy. Jesus said in John chapter 15, one and two, that the father reaches into our lives and he prunes. 
But as a Puritan once said, the husbandman is never so close to the branch as when he is trimming it. The father is never so close to us as when he is reaching in and he is taking out those things that offend. If you are in a place of suffering, be assured that he loves you. Regardless of how it may appear at the moment, he loves you. Because love always expresses itself for the good of the one that it loves. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your goodness and also for those times when you're cutting out those things in our lives that are keeping us from you. Father, forgive us of those sinfulness. Forgive us of those times that we allow the world to infiltrate our lives. Father, just help us come back to you in every way. Father, may our world come to once again to call upon your name. But Father, it begins with us. It begins with your people. And so, Father, I pray for those who may be watching this morning or whenever they are able to watch. Father, we just pray for them. We pray for any sin in their lives, anything that they have continued to try to keep concealed, anything that they may have that is, is hurting them in their relationship with you, Father. Father, please open their eyes. We await your coming, the coming of your Son, a day of rejoicing for your people. And so, Father, we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.